All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, so it's time to stand in the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton, here for week three of Apology Article 24 on the Mass, continuing the question, what is a sacrifice? And today especially, what is the true daily sacrifice that we ended the podcast with last week in the confessional corner? So we pick up in Paragraph 39, we're going to go through paragraph 65 this week. The Pharisaic opinion of the outward act being cast aside, let us understand that spiritual worship and a daily sacrifice of the heart are meant because in the New Testament the substance of good things should be sought for. This means the Holy Spirit putting the flesh to death and new life. These things should make it clear that the type of the daily sacrifice declares nothing against us, but rather for us, because we look for all the parts illustrated by the daily sacrifice. The adversaries falsely imagine that the ceremony alone is meant, not also the preaching of the gospel, putting the flesh to death, and enlivening the heart, and so forth. Now, good people, it can be easily determined that the complaint against us, that we abolish the daily sacrifice, is entirely false. Experience shows what sort of Antiochi they are who hold power in the church. Under the appearance of religion, they assume to themselves the kingdom of the world. They rule without concern for religion in the teaching of the gospel. They wage war like kings of the world and set up services in the church. The adversaries keep only the ceremony in the mass and publicly apply this to sacrilegious gain. Afterward, they misrepresent that this work, as applied for others, merits grace and all good things for them. They do not teach the gospel in their sermons. They do not comfort consciences. They do not show that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake. Rather, they represent the, rather they present the worship of saints, human satisfactions, and human traditions, and they affirm that people are justified before God by these. Although some of these traditions are clearly godless, they still defend them by violence. If any preacher wants to be regarded as more learned, he presents philosophical questions, which neither the people nor even those who propose them understand. Lastly, those who are more tolerable teach the law and say nothing about the righteousness of faith. So here again, in the daily mass, there is nothing said about the gospel. In fact, many times, and it's said multiple times in the confessions, that the Roman churches do not even have sermons, period, except for in the season of Lent. And therefore, it is tied to nothing but the law and human traditions and human opinions, because that is all that the Lenten worship is for the Roman Catholic Church, is about human traditions and human opinions and how we can and must abide by the law. No words of faith, no words of righteousness being given to us because of Christ. In fact, only that the name of Jesus is mentioned in the ceremony makes it anything close to a Christian service. And that is the biggest problem, is that when there is no talk of the gospel, there is no talk about faith, all we can do is rely on our works. All we can do is hope that we have done enough to be able to earn our salvation. But the problem is we don't earn our salvation. It is given as a gift to us. And the Bible talks about that clearly everywhere, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. Everything talks about righteousness and salvation being given as a gift. All right, pick up in paragraph 44. Melanchthon picks up the confutation. 
In the confutation, the adversaries fuss over the desertion of churches. Altars stand unadorned, lacking candles and images. They regard these trifles as ornaments to churches. It is a far different desertion than Daniel means in chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11, namely ignorance of the gospel. Overwhelmed by the multitude and variety of traditions and opinions, the people were in no way able to welcome the sum of Christian doctrine. Among the people, whoever understood the doctrine of repentance as presented by the adversaries? Yet this is the chief topic of Christian doctrine. Consciences were tormented by the listing of offenses and by satisfactions. The adversaries never mention faith by which we freely receive the forgiveness of sins. All the books and all the sermons of the adversaries were silent about the exercises of faith, struggling with despair, and the free forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. To these, the horrible profanation of the masses and many other godly services in the churches were added. This is the desertion described by Daniel. So the Confutation talks about the fact that altars are not adorned, that people like Andreas Karlstadt, one of the radical Wittenberg reformers who was very quickly chastised by Luther and kicked out of Wittenberg, you know, took away all the images, all the statuary, everything that was considered Roman Catholic and must be done away with in regards for a new form of worship to join in. And Melanchthon, Luther, Bugenhagen, everybody else in authority in Wittenberg wanted nothing to do with that. But Karlstadt decided things were going too far. Also, again, this is a time where the adversaries lump everybody outside of the Roman church as Lutheran. So this is also talking about Zwingli. This is also talking about anybody else who has gone further than Luther and taken away everything that was Roman in origin to present their own thing. So we have everybody being lumped together in the confutation because really the Roman adversaries only wanted to deal with Luther. They didn't want to have to worry about fighting on multiple fronts. They just lumped everybody under the Lutherans and said, well, you guys all think like this. And that's the problem. You can't have a whole group. I mean, you can't even have even the group uh, that are known as Lutherans today even find agreement on everything. There are so many different things, especially among our conservative branches in Missouri and Wisconsin than there are in the liberal branches like the ELCA, that you can't find agreement between those two because they are at opposite and polar extremes on several issues. And that is the sad state of the church in our fallen world. That is the desertion that comes, that Daniel was speaking about in his prophecies in the 11th and 12th chapters. We pick up in paragraph 48. On the contrary, by God's favor, our priests attend to the ministry of the word, teach the gospel of our Christ's blessings, and show that the forgiveness of sins happens freely for Christ's sake. This doctrine brings sure comfort to consciences. The doctrine of good works that God commands is also added. The worth and use of the sacraments are declared. If the daily sacrifice was the proper use of the sacrament, we would keep the sacrifice. The adversaries would not, for their priests use the sacrament to make money. There is a frequent and more conscientious use. The people use it after having first been instructed and examined. People are taught about the true use of the sacrament. It was set up to be a seal and testimony of the free forgiveness of sins so that it should be 
It should remind alarmed consciences to be truly confident and believe that their sins are freely forgiven. Since we keep both the preaching of the gospel and the lawful use of the sacrament, the daily sacrifice remains with us. If we must speak of outward appearances, church attendance among us is better than among the adversaries. The audience are held by useful and clear sermons. Neither the people nor the teachers have understood the doctrine of the adversaries. There is nothing that keeps people at church more than good preaching. The true adornment of the churches is godly, useful, and clear doctrine, the devout use of the sacraments, fervent prayer, and the like. Candles, golden vessels, and similar adornments are fitting, but they are not the specifically unique or ordainment belonging to the church. If the adversaries make these things the focus of worship and not the preaching of the gospel, in faith, in the struggles of faith, they are to be numbered among those whom Daniel describes as worshiping their God with gold and silver. Daniel 11.38 They quote also from the epistle to the Hebrews, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Chapter 5, verse 1 they conclude that since there are high priests and priests in the New Testament, that means there is also a sacrifice for sins. This passage particularly impresses the unlearned, especially when the showiness of the priesthood and the sacrifices of the Old Testament are spread before the eyes. This resemblance deceives the ignorant so that they decide that a ceremonial sacrifice should also exist among us in the same way, which should be applied for the sins of others, like in the Old Testament. The service of the Mass and the rest of the polity of the Pope is nothing more than false zeal for the misunderstood Levitical order. Here again, Melanchthon goes back to the fact that we keep the Mass better than the Romans. We keep because we have not only the ceremony, we not have only have the service of the sacrament, but we also have the service of the Word attached to it. And so there are days, not only on Sunday, but the festival days and even other days in the week where communion is given. But those are not the only times that people come to church. People come to church daily there, not only to receive the Lord's Supper, but to be able to hear good preaching. And I think that parenthetical note in the Concordia brings that out very well, that there is nothing that keeps people at church more than good preaching. We can talk about all the adornments, all the different things going on, the color of the carpet and everything like that, and that's fine. But what keeps people coming to church is good preaching of the gospel. That is what keeps people tuning into podcasts like this, is good teaching and preaching of the word and the understanding of the confessions. Because, as they said, nobody on either side, has ever truly understood the adversaries' doctrines because they are so wrapped up in the minuscule things. And we need not be wrapped up in all the minutiae. Picking up in paragraph 53, the main proofs for our belief are in the epistle to the Hebrews. Yet the adversaries twist mutilated passages from this epistle against us, as in this very passage, where it is said that every high priest is ordained to offer sacrifices for sins. Scripture immediately adds that Christ is the high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5, 6, and 10. 
The preceding words speak about the Levitical priesthood and show that the Levitical priesthood was an image of Christ's priesthood. The Levitical sacrifices for sin did not merit the forgiveness of sins before God. They were only an image of Christ's sacrifice, which was to be the one atoning sacrifice, as we said before. To a great extent, the epistle speaks about how the ancient priesthood and the ancient sacrifices were set up not to merit the forgiveness of sins before God or reconciliation, but only to illustrate the future sacrifice of Christ alone. In the Old Testament, saints had to be justified by faith, which receives the promise of the forgiveness of sins granted for Christ's sake, just as saints are also justified in the New Testament. From the beginning of the world, all saints had to believe that Christ would be the promised offering and satisfaction for sins, as Isaiah 53.10 teaches, when his soul makes an offering for sin. We again have this point blank in the epistle to the Hebrews that Christ sacrifice is the one and only atoning sacrifice. There is not a repetition of this sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Old Testament only pointed towards this, only gave the forgiveness of sins in the faith, in the promise of the coming sacrifice. And so it talks about the ancient ways just being shadows of what was to come in Christ. That everything in the Levitical law, everything regarding the sacrifices in Leviticus is all brought together in Christ and his sacrifice. In the Old Testament, sacrifices did not merit reconciliation except as a picture for they merited civil reconciliation, but they illustrated the coming sacrifice. This means that Christ is the only sacrifice applied on behalf of the sins of others. Therefore, in the New Testament, no sacrifice is left to be applied for the sins of others except the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. The blood of the bull, the goat, the sheep, whatever the animal was, that blood was applied to the person as a sign, a symbol, a foreshadowing of Christ once for all. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice that merits anything for anybody else. Everything else is just a picture of that one sacrifice. And the Roman theologians would sit there and say basically the same thing. That's what they're doing when they re-sacrifice the Mass every day. That we represent Christ's body and blood to the Father to then be able to be atoned for our sins. And that's not what the Bible teaches. It is not a representation. It is the ongoing, continual remembrance of that once-for-all sacrifice. The priest does not do anything in the sacrifice of the Mass. The pastor does not do anything, even when he says the words of institution and consecrating the elements. It is not he that does it. It is the word itself, given by the word incarnate, that does these things. Picking up in paragraph 57. Those who imagine that Levitical sacrifices merited the forgiveness of sins before God and by this example require sacrifices of the New Testament that are to be applied on behalf of others in addition to Christ's death are completely mistaken. This imagination absolutely destroys the merit of Christ's passion and the righteousness of faith, and it corrupts the doctrine of the Old and New Testaments. Instead of Christ, it makes for us other mediators and atonement makers out of the priests and sacrificers who daily sell their work in the churches. If anyone argues that in the New Testament a priest is needed to make offering for sins, this can only be said about Christ. 
The entire epistle to the Hebrews confirms this explanation. In addition to Christ's death, if we were to look to any other satisfaction that applies to the sins of others and so reconcile God, this would be nothing more than to make other mediators in addition to Christ. The priesthood of the New Testament is the Spirit's ministry, as Paul teaches, 2 Corinthians 3.6. So it has only Christ one sacrifice, which is enough and applies to the sins of others. Besides, this priesthood has no sacrifices like the Levitical order, which could be applied by the outward act to others. Rather, it offers the gospel and the sacrament to others, so that they may conceive faith in the Holy Spirit through them and be brought from death to life. So the Spirit's ministry conflicts with the application of an outward act. The Spirit's ministry is that through which the Holy Spirit is powerful in hearts. Therefore, this ministry is beneficial to others when it is powerful in them and regenerates and enlivens them. This does not happen by applying someone's work to another. We have shown why the Mass is not justified by the outward act and why, when applied to others, it does not merit forgiveness. This is because both conflict with the righteousness of faith. For it is impossible that sin should be forgiven and the terrors of death and sin be overcome by anything other than faith in Christ, according to Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. The Mass cannot be done simply by the outward act. It must have faith in the promise of what God gives us in the Mass. Because, as Romans 5 once says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Finishing off in paragraph 61 to 65, also, we have shown that the scriptures which are quoted against us do not approve the godless opinion of the adversaries about the outward act. Every person everywhere can determine this. Therefore, Thomas's error is to be rejected. He wrote that the body of the Lord, once offered on the cross for original debt, is continually offered for the daily offenses on the altar, in order that in this the church might have a service by which to reconcile God to herself. The other common errors are also to be rejected, such as that the Mass by the outward act gives grace to the one using it, or that when the Mass is applied for others, even wicked persons, provided they do not introduce an obstacle, it merits the forgiveness of sins, guilt, and punishment for them. All these things are false and godless and are recently invented by unlearned monks. They cloud over the glory of Christ's passion and the righteousness of faith. From these errors sprang countless others, such as masses benefit when applied for many, just as much as when applied individually. The philosophers have particular degrees of merit, just as money changers have varying weights for gold and silver. Besides, they sell the mass as the cost of, for receiving what each one seeks. Merchants pay so that business may be prosperous, hunters so that hunting may be successful, and countless other things. Finally, they also apply it to the dead. By applying the sacrament, they free souls from the pains of purgatory, even though the Mass does not even help the living without faith. The adversaries are unable to produce even one syllable from the Scriptures to defend these fables when they teach with great authority in the Church. They do not have the testimony of the ancient Church or the Fathers. And that's where we pick up next week, is what do the Fathers say about the sacrifice. But we must go back to Thomas Aquinas here. And this is the very embodiment of the whole problem in the Roman Mass and the Outward Act. Thomas wrote that the body of the Lord, once offered for, on the cross for original debt, 
is continually offered for daily offenses on the altar in order that in this the church might have a service by which to reconcile God to herself. There are so many problems in this sentence. The body of the Lord, once offered on the cross for original debt. In other words, Christ only died to pay for original sin. Not for actual sins, only for original sin. That is why the Roman church still today teaches that baptism only covers original sin. So the body of the Lord is continually offered for daily offenses on the altar. It is continually offered because we must pay off everything that we have actually done. Not just what we inherited, because that was done with in our baptism. But now we must pay off what we have done. Ourselves, again, being the focus of our reconciliation. And that comes to a head right at the end of the sentence. In order that the church might have a service by which to reconcile God to herself. Importance of word order here. Reconciling God to herself. The church is not being reconciled to God. God is being reconciled to the church. And this was the problem 500 years ago. It's still the problem today. That people want God in their image. They want him to bend to their whims. Which is why we have so many problems whether it's in the Catholic Church, whether it's in the Lutheran Church, whether it's in the Baptist or the big mega church, non-denominationals, it doesn't matter. The reason why all of these exist is because people want God to be reconciled to them, not them be reconciled to God. They want to be in charge, not have God be in charge. Because the one you are reconciled to is the one who supposedly has the power, the one who is able to offer the forgiveness of all offenses. And if the Mass, according to Thomas, reconciles God to the church, that means the Mass forms God into the image that the church has. And as Luther speaks quite often, and Melanchthon does as well, is that the church often changes its mind because you have the popes and the councils saying all kinds of different things throughout history, sometimes contradicting each other. And you've got to muddle through to figure out which one you're going to actually follow and believe. That's not the way God set up the church. That's not the way God set up the world to begin with. God set it up for him and his rule and his word to be the important thing, what we must be reconciled to, not reconciling the word to us. That is the biggest problem in the church today. And that is what we have to wrestle with, especially in this text, is that we seek as sinful human beings for God to be more accepting of us, which is why we talk about tolerance so much. But God is not tolerant of many things. And he has said this over and over again in the scriptures. This is why Christians get such a bad rap. Especially when they try to work from the word of God. Work from the Bible. 
is because the Bible is not tolerant of what people want to do. And he's not, it's not supposed to be because it is the word of God given for us to believe what he has set for us. And that is why it is the main thing that equips us to wrestle with theology. All right, that's it for this week. Next week, we continue on week four of the article on the mass. Again, getting into the church fathers as this becomes one of the big articles, not only just because it involves one of the key foci of Christian worship in the mass, but also because there are so many things that the church in Rome had changed under popes and councils. But until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me and wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with the theology this week. Amen.